This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of The Book Report. I am Adam, also known as Bertram in the game, and I am joined, as always, with your dungeon teacher. Oh, no, it's not dungeon teacher! <laughs> you did it again! I knew I would do it! Your you master teacher, Caitlin. <laughs> Sorry, Caitlin, I messed up. Yeah, it's fine. It's the Wild West here tonight. It is. What a great... Man, I really stuck the landing. Uh, how's it going, Kate? It goes really well. You know, it's like those times when you're like, all right, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then as soon as you open your mouth, it just comes out. I was definitely leading up to it, and it was in my mind's eye. And I was like, what is it? What is it? What is it? Dungeon teacher. That's totally what it is. And then I said it, and I was like, wait, no, that's not what it is. You messed up. You have derailed. I'll have you guys know that when I am when we're recording our sessions, Adam has me put a post-it note with the word um on it and then circled and crossed out because I Damn truly right. say that word way too many times. So it might be that Adam, we need to put a post-it note that says dungeon teacher on it and then cross Burn. that baby out. And yeah, that sounds that sounds fair. That's fair. You, de- you do say um all the time, and oh, I'm gosh. sure I have my own little ticks also. I'm just I'm made more sorry, aware of them editor. because I'm, as the editor, yeah. Every yeah. mouth sound and tick and click and um and heavy breathing, everything else. But anyways, let's get to the show. So <laughs> okay. we are here because you have listened all the way through Robin Hood and Launching off into the next next book series, which is going to be The Count of Monte Cristo. But that's not what today's about. Today's about Robin Hood. The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood? Is that what it's called? Well, the full name of the book that I It's way too long. It's way too long. It's it's cool. It's called The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of Great Renown in Nottinghamshire. So That does not roll off the tongue. So, Which is why we just Robin called it on Hood. the show Robin Hood. <laughs> Shorten that bad boy. So, yeah. Caitlin, let's dive right in. Tell all of us about the history of Robin Hood. Gladly. That's what I'm here for. Uh, so, yes, the, the specific version of the Robin Hood story we are pulling from is that long-ass title, The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of Great Renown in Nottinghamshire. Uh, that was written by an American novelist, not a British dude. Uh, his name was, his name is, was, was Howard Pyle. Uh, it was published in 1883, and Pyle was both a novelist and an illustrator. So he was one of those double threat guys, like you would go into a comic convention, and he's hawking his wares that he both uh-huh. wrote Doing and illustrated the stories. Make, making yeah, bank. totally. Pyle would be totally taking commissions and making bank there. Having the long line. Why? Can Man, you draw me as my D&D character? <laughs> I'm so surprised because this is the first book that we've done where obviously we all know Robin Hood and what Robin Hood is. I know nothing about its history. I know nothing about the author. I didn't know his name. Didn't know he was American. I assumed he was British. Why do I know nothing about this person? Is it because <laughs> the American school system? 
I mean, there are many faults for the American school system. More specifically, and... the Texas high school school system. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so Pyle didn't create the character of Robin Hood. Robin Hood had existed for over 500 years as this 500 character of years. lore. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, so once again, the story we're using was the version that was published in 1883, but we have accounts of Robin Hood going all the way back to the 1300s. It's just, this wow, is one I of the first... no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what Pyle did uh, was that he, he, made, he, he took the stories surrounding this figure of Robin Hood and put them together into these mini-series, as it were, and changed it to make Robin Hood more into a clear hero. Um, because he wanted it to be kind of kid friendly. He wanted it to be clear like this is a a figure who is doing good things, who's here on behalf of his fellow man. Um, and this is someone that you can like safely like have as a family friendly figure. And mm. that also I will then illustrate. And really a lot of the things that we have seen from movies and um, other illustrations have come from Howard Pyle's first illustrations that he did for Robin Hood. And so really his depiction of him, we see, you know, in those green tights and that Lincoln green outfit and that specific hat, it comes from Pyle. And so really his new way of telling the story surrounding Robin Hood is what we know today. Um, Before then, actually, they had just all these different types of... um, all these different types of folkloric stories surrounding that area with like this figure, some called Robin Hood, others just Robert of Loxley and, and still others that just like the hooded man. And Robert, actually, Robert of Loxley. Yeah. Robert of Loxley. Oh, okay. Um, and so he, in those earlier stories, sometimes he's kind of a dick. And so Pyle made him into what we see is more of a of a hero. You know, do you know? Do you have any examples? Do you know? Have you? I don't know if you've read any of those, but do you know yeah. in your research? Like, what what are some of the dickish things he would do? Yeah, yeah. One of them that I read, uh, it was this late seventeenth century ballad um, called "Robin Hood's Progress to Nottingham," and uh, in it, Robin kills fourteen guys because they didn't honor a bet to him. And so what Pyle did is he modified it uh, so that instead Robin is defending himself against an attempt on his life by one of the one of the guys, one of the gang members. Um, So Pyle has him only kill one man and that guy shoots at him first. It's kind of like, you know, that question, who shot first? Was Uh it it Greedo or or Hansel? Uh Yeah. And so in here he makes it very clear Greedo shot first. (laughs) Uh, which I made to include in a little bit of our Robin's backstory when she's talking to Penny, uh, Mm. where just there was, uh, you know... Caught up in a fight and Caught up in a fight and a a shot goes awry and kills somebody and then has to go into hiding. That is actually the beginning of The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. That's how it all begins. Wow. So he took uh, a a pre-existing character in folklore... Mm-hmm. And then kind of took all this and made an, like an amalgamation, kind of all these little separate pieces and tried to make, did he, did he weave those pieces into the story that we now know as the book? Or did he just like take pieces of the character that existed and completely write his own sto- unique story? He did. He clearly did his research. So we, we have bits and pieces of the existing, a lot of, a lot of the stories surrounding Robin Hood were from ballads and poetry very old stuff. And he clearly did his research and took from those stories. And then he just tweaked them kind of like we're doing with our own like fan fiction of classic literature to fit the themes that he wanted to get across, as well as to make it more of a hero story and an adventure story that linked together as opposed to these just separate random ballads that were all given the same name of Robin Hood. So it, if you want to learn a, a cool literary term, uh, what this this story is, is each chapter is like its own issue. In fact, at hmm. first he wrote each short story, each short chapter, and they're really, really short or easy to go through. Like I, I busted through them, not because I was trying to go fast, but because actually the pacing of the stories is great and it's easy to follow along with. Uh, but they were published separately with illustrations and then later on all strung together. So it's like, you know, separate issues with then one volume. 
Is that uh, called like serialized or I don't, I don't know what that term would be? Yeah, for yeah, he did serialize it. But a cool literary term for you is the word garland. You know, you think of the thing that you string up uh, on the mantle to get ready for festivities or the holidays. Well, in literature, the word garland is a story in which each chapter tells a different tale about the same person or the same group. Oh, so, is, is, is it named oh, that man, because man is of garland. like, is it named that because of the actual item of what a garland is and like pieces mm-hmm. put together? Is that why yeah, it yeah. got that name? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a metaphorical name. So it's somebody was trying to, I don't even know how far back this word goes when it's used in literature, but somebody was trying to come up with a term for, I have a collection of stories that go together, but they're each their own. They can stand alone by themselves. You know, they could be their own episode. And so they named it a garland. Speaking of going back, can you mm-hmm. shed some light? You you mentioned that the, maybe the the character and folklore of like Robin Hood or Robert Hood or whatever the first name Robert was. I'm sure th- there's probably other yeah iterations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned going back as maybe as far as the 1300s. So so clearly, so th- th- this was folklore that existed in. In London or the UK or where mm-hmm. or yeah, England, where where was that? Is that where it kind of began? And then when the Brit- British colonized the United States of America, is that or what became America? Is did it come over with it? Uh, I'm just trying to get a because uh, I'm, I'm thrown off by like how long it goes back. But then you said that the book that it, we've gone going off of is American. Do you have any idea of how those kind of came about? <laughs> In my research for it, I, I didn't see like one trend of it, but what we do see in earlier America, and I'm talking about more of the colonial times, yes, you did have a lot of folklore come over from Britain and Western Europe uh, as a way that it's how they kept culture alive when they were holding on to where they were first rooted from. Hmm. But then some stories took root and they were more easily captured in the imagination but we don't really see a lot of robin hood or even just like outlaws in the forest type stories come into the fray until really the mid to late 1800s might be uh my romantics so you're hearing me again mention that but we have I, I'm not saying Pyle was a romantic. He's not really in the same school as Mary Shelley right. or Herman Melville, but we do see a greater interest by at that point because of the romantics in uh, fairy stories and in adventure stories that were rooted in folklore from Britain and Western Europe. Do you know why the character of... Again, Robin Hood. I'll just call him Robin Hood, even though I'm sure there's different oh, yeah. iterations of his let's, name. Let's call him Robin Hood. Cool. Do you know why the character came about? I, I was was he always built up as this, you know, steal from the rich, give to the poor kind of person? Is that what was that what kept him around, and and why people was it was it a source of like encouragement for people who like wrote these and shared these stories, or why was just this character, why did he stick around for hundreds of years? Yeah, it, it, well, that kind of got me wondering, too. It's just like, why is this a character that we have seen pop up over and over again, even in movies? Right. You know, why, why, is, he, why is he not really commercially successful, but in, in films time and time again, uh, and even in some of the first films that we see, right? In, in 1920s, 1930s, that's one of the first characters they went to. But... It made me also question, where is this based off of where did he come from? And I'm not alone. I, I saw article after article of people searching for the origin of Robin Hood for some like identifiable historical outlaw in like the Barnsdale or Sherwood area where this story is based. Um, but most of what I'm seeing, most of most scholars dealing with this kind of accept him as a literary invention that there was no particular Robin Hood. Hmm. Um, but instead, he's this amalgamation or this mixture that's based in part on um, some other famous figures. I came across the names like, um, and if you're if you're in Britain, maybe you'll know who I'm talking about because I was still stuck because my American mind had never heard of these people. But there were some other famous figures earlier on that were a lot like Robin Hood. Um, one of them was named Gamelin, 
G-A-M-E-L-Y-N. Um, and then another one is Fuchfitz Warren. That's a fun name. Whoa. Um, F-O-U-K-E, Fitz, and then Warren, W-A-R-Y-N. Um, but they're, they're real-life outlaws. And so they did enough of exploits that were still known historically throughout Britain. And so there are many literary scholars who think stories of these guys perhaps led to this creation of this Robin Hood figure. But any search for like the ideal Robin Hood, this, you know, in, in the story that we read, he's this dispossessed noble, right? He, he came from a noble background, but lost it all because of an accident that happened and then devotes his life to robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Nobody can find an actual person that fits that. Um, but he became, especially in the 1800s, uh, in, in America, really, this, this figure who's this characteristics of individualism, right? Like kind mm-hmm. of going, you yeah. know, pulling myself up on my bootstraps and things go badly for me, but I'm going to turn it around. Um, there, it's, it's really representative of like the spirit of like what is a hero in the 1800s, especially in America. And so it fit that bill perfectly for what was needed at the time. Um, but yeah, just the areas that were in the story of Robin Hood, um, Sherwood, Forest, which is mentioned, Kirkley's, and even Barnsdale, um, these are all real places that exist in Britain. And so it, it is rooted in actual geographical areas that are based in fact. Does Nottingham, Nottingham exist? Yeah. Yes, it does exist. Oh, okay. I, I had no clue. Uh, okay, so... You've so so you've explained the kind of before the book and a lot of the folklore and kind of how it came about a little bit. So now the book itself, what you had to read and what we tried to weave into our storyline. What can you tell me about that book and specifically uh, Pyle? Was it Howard Pyle? Yeah, Howard and Pyle, how, and, and how uh, he came to write it, and yeah, any history with that? Yeah, Pyle has a. Uh, pretty impressive rap sheet for himself as is a both for literature and in art he was his illustrations are really really cool i would encourage you guys go look him up howard has he P-Y-L-E. written anything else that i would have heard of has he written anything that you would have heard of um he has a collection of arthurian tales uh just the it's not the famous Mort Arthur or Knights of the Round Table, but the Tales of King Arthur is something that he wrote that you okay. can look up. Uh, and then he did this interesting, it's called Men of Iron. And it's, a, it's another tale of like different, like it's another garland of the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, so that's, it was really cool. And I think it's unfinished, but he worked on this story of Jesus and his disciples, but if they were here today, like, well, for his time in the late 1800s and like how modern society would totally reject him much the same way he was rejected back uh, in 33 AD. Uh, so it's, right. yeah, it's just, it was an interesting kind of like his own historical fiction, but like, what if Jesus were alive today around us? And so he did his own, that with, with illustrations. So it's, it's fascinating to look at his work and, and both taking from famous lore as well as his own inventions. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, but he, yeah, and he was definitely uh, just self-published and doing it himself for the longest time. As an academic, he was a professor as well, and he founded his own like school of art. Um, and he what part of the states to- was he, was he in? Uh, Northeast. Okay. I, I don't know exactly which I don't have that in my notes, so I gotcha. I could look it up, but yeah, he's in the Northeast. Um, but he and his sister, his sister Catherine Pyle, was another illustrator and poet, and so they would work kind of tandem side by side and edit each other's work and give each other feedback. Uh, but they were just like this dynamic duo, and so she did help him a lot with editing these stories, although all the illustrations were purely his own. But each of these, yeah, each of these tales, they they they're awesome to read. Uh, you know the just for those of you who might only be familiar with the title of Robin Hood, but in this collection of stories in that he recruits his merry men, um, the the guys that follow him. Um, and I wanted to like find a way to call it that, but I didn't want it to be just men, especially we have instead 
Robin and Marion are both women. Hmm. And so it would, it didn't quite fit. So we had to find a different way of naming them that was more neutral. Uh, but in, in the stories too, we see Robin Hood resisting authority, um, aiding his fellow man. And so it is from Pyle that we get that trope of robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Oh, that didn't exist beforehand. That was a pile thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this specifically for children, but it was enjoyed well beyond just kids. Much like The Hobbit was written with children in mind, right. or Harry Potter was written mm-hmm. with children in mind, but adults greatly enjoyed it as well. And so after Pyle, Robin Hood became an increasingly popular subject for children's books. We see, because of Howard Pyle, we see uh, Lewis Reed's Bold Robin Hood and His Outlaw Band published in 1912, and then just the single title Robin Hood by Paul, by Paul Creswick in 1917, and a slew of more children's novels after the same fashion with illustrations and short stories. And a lot of them featured Robin Hood. So a lot of imitators, all because of this guy. So, I mean, obviously the fact that this character has existed for so long and still exists and still has movies and and books and other things coming out. I'm guessing, was it extremely well received when it came out? Did everyone just instantly love it? A huge hit from the beginning? Yes, it, it actually was. This isn't a Herman Melville story where it's, you know, he right. was only understood after he died. Right. But this was, no, this was immediately successful, immediately well received. Fun fact, too, um, around the same time, I think within 10 years of it, we have, so our next story, Count of Monte Cristo, that author, Alexander Dumas, um, he also wrote, uh, kind of, in the same circle there, he also wrote uh, two novels focusing on the Robin Hood stories. And that is oh, where really? we get Prince of Thieves from. Yeah. So really? Heard of, yeah. Yeah. So that movie, Prince of Thieves, um, was written by Alexander Dumas. And I, of course, do not have any grasp of pronouncing things in French. So it's <laughs> La Prince de Volure. I cannot. No, with confidence. Again, with confidence. Just do it. Do it. Don't laugh and do it. Just go for it. La printe. <laughs> no, go for it. Just butcher it. La printe de valeur uh, in 1872. Nice. I'm sure you Prince nailed it. Oh, thank you. You build me up. Someone uh, leave us so, a comment. Yeah, if, you're, if you know how to speak French, and you can leave us a comment below. Tell us how she did. Or totally crap on me, and feel free to do that. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so in 1872 uh, is when... So Dumas, um, took, Dumas. So Dumas took this character. So I guess when, when Pyle took it, he kind of collected everything. He kind of reinvented this Robin Hood character, and now it was newly established. And that was the new foundation, and... Other authors were taking this version that Pyle created, like you mentioned, the rob from the rich, give to the poor kind of character, right. and they wrote their own stories and adventures. Yeah, that be- kind of became the the plumb line for it, the 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 guiding feature that from now on, Robin Hood is clearly the good guy. He's not mm-hmm. in this morally gray area where we kind of wonder, is he the bad guy? Uh, but we make it very, very clear that he is someone we root for. So was was yeah. he becoming kind of like this? What what would have you know become kind of like a Batman or Superman? These kind of comic book characters where they exist for so long and have other authors come in and write their own stories and their own spinoffs. Robin Hood just kind of became this own universe where everyone could just come in and throw their hat in that kind of ring. Oh, I am so glad you mentioned comics. That That is one thing that I'm coming across here. This is just like a comic book. This is just like an early historical graphic novel. Right. And then I started seeing other people kind of point this out. But this is, this is why it's important to pay attention to this work. I mean, it's awesome to do Robin Hood within the realm of D&D. It is great to have that as part of our, our collection of stories that we're featuring. But also, as a work itself... This is groundbreaking. In, in 1883, Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, it introduced new standards in publishing images. Hmm. Pyle, for the, one of the first times, was using for 
on a regular work, highly detailed and even historical drawings that accompanied the retelling of a story that appealed especially to children. So this is the first time we're seeing books for children with high quality illustrations. Usually for kids, they're like, meh, there you go. Like they wouldn't really spend really? too much time on these illustrations. Yeah, you would have illustrations as a special extra thing that they would kind of put in between pages like oh. once every 50 to 100. But here, this is one of the first times that we're seeing high quality illustrations on most of the pages in color for a lot of them too for kids to, to see and enjoy. So Was that was that looked down upon the same way that comics were later? Like, oh, there's pictures in the books. Were, you was know, the illustration? It wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. It, it wasn't. Uh, it was it viewed as think, art, like art that went hand in yeah. hand with literature. Seriously, go look at pile stuff. It, it actually was high quality art, but also because he made it very clear, like this is for children. So it wasn't trying to be passed off as this is high art. You know, praise me for it. And so because people already came in, well, this is kind of a, a juvenile. Uh, piece of work to read, then they were more forgiving of it, I think. Gotcha. But his work has been reprinted so many times in different configurations, you know, um, in serialized more so in smaller issues, you know, each chapter is its own little mini book. And then together, um, sometimes even reprinted as the illustrations without the text because people were just a big fan of that. And show, and so... This really shows a case of an early publication that was targeted for children, but became popular among adults. Like you have lots of this this realization of like the parents were reading the books and like really enjoyed it for themselves, and the kids were. It's like the parents were having it like for their own bedtime reading. No, so uh-huh. it's, it's it's really cool. It's it's short, you know, action driven text, and it's easily read by a wide audience. So there's a lot to love about it. I feel like I have, so you kind of already jumped ahead to where I wanted to go about the significance and things that it launched or started, and, and that's great. I feel like I never read this in school, and I feel like I don't know mm-hmm. anybody who read this in school. Is there a reason why this isn't taught? Is it not maybe from a literature perspective, or I guess from a technical perspective? Is it not as groundbreaking or resonant in that way as opposed to more commercially and of in other ways that it was successful why is it not taught in school or why isn't it required reading is there a reason that separates it from i don't know the the frankensteins and the moby dicks of the world that that is an excellent question i actually was asking myself this when i was reading it because you know from from the eyes of a teacher too i was thinking why why was this never an option for me why had I never really heard about Howard Pyle in my studies or even just within the textbooks that were, you know, given to teach from as, you know, American literature itself or even world literature uh, for the earlier grades? And I'm wondering if it's because there's this, there's almost this snobbishness that... Mm. That canon literature for American high schools tries to live up to, but ultimately fails at. And so because it's not a chapter novel, right? It's, it's a garland. So it's like, you know, short, serialized, right. uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's a graphic novel, really. Uh, and because there are tons of pictures and it is quick, easy to follow action with no, there, there, there isn't really a lot of deep literary terms to be found in it. Like there are mm-hmm. obvious themes. There's lessons and worldviews. Well, to when, I, when I looked at, from when it. I glanced at a few pages from when you're reading it, the language even seemed kind of dense, or maybe it was like kind of an old English kind of style of writing. It looked Ooh, more well, complicated it, than what I thought. Yeah, it would the be. style of writing is made up. So oh, it, really? It is. Yeah, because it's it's kind of this. It's Howard Pyle's take on what older English could sound like for a youthful audience. Can you give you know, me? An, can not, you give us an example of what that what that sounded like? Uh, a quote that you liked? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll read you one of the quotes that we uh, that I used. Um, this is one sentence. 
So let me look at it. Okay. It was at the dawn of day in merry Maytime, when hedgerows are green and flowers bedeck the meadows, daisies pied in yellow cuckoo buds and fair primroses all along the briary hedges, when apple buds blossom and sweet birds sing, the lark at dawn of day, the throstle cock and cuckoo, when lads and lasses look upon each other with sweet thoughts, when busy housewives spread their linen to bleach upon the bright green grass. Yeah, that, see, that, that sounds... Yeah, so I'm I'm sure it might be one of those things that when it came out, that was like, oh, this is, we're used to this kind of language or style of speaking, so kids could understand it. But if I, I feel like if I gave that to a, a kid in third grade, hell, if I gave that to someone maybe like in high school, they'd be like, whoa, what? Kind yeah. of like it's, mm-hmm. it's I, maybe it's just like the different kind of style of speech that we're not used to anymore. So reading it that way would just feel... uh harder to penetrate i guess yeah it i I could see that because you definitely see denser language in 19th century literature it is more on the flowery side more on the elongated passages for sure but then you go on top of that and you have an author who kind of wants to in a playful way say hey this is this is older english it's like old middle english that i'm making up and so he'll throw in these and thous and hark and other things and huzzah things that we associate and and it's it's very interesting because it's sort of in a tongue-in-cheek manner but the way he deals with these characters and the lessons that they learn and the adventures they go through is done with the utmost reverence but the the language itself is in this this fantastical, really American lens of here's how the Brits would have talked at this time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I could see like if you're if you're looking at this, it's like it's nonsensical, but there's no real like irony that they're trying to drive at or no real like satire they're trying to do. It's just for fun. And so I could see that's why it's not really, you know, a point of academic perpetuity you know for for high schools to focus on so it wouldn't fit the standard of what is good enough for canon so there so he was being very earnest in his kind of stereotyping of what he thought that would be like like he wasn't doing it tongue-in-cheek maybe or or mocking but it was like let me be a little bit more sing-songy like the like the british and and kind of made up some kind of flowery language (laughs) that's funny yeah, yeah. So he definitely wasn't trying to make fun of anyone, but he was trying to have fun with it because right. he was writing for children. So, so okay, so was he was writing it for children. Like, adults liked mm-hmm. it, but it was aimed for children? Yes. So if I go to a library or if I go to a bookstore, is Robin Hood in the children's department? Oh, that's a good question. I bet you if we would go to our local Romans, it would be because they treat literature right. They do categorize it in because you and I were in their children's section and we were finding The Hobbit in there and we were finding um, some other classics like Wizard of Oz in there. So I I would not be surprised if The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood were in the children's section there. But it's probably just different based off of where you're going. And you're saying that's right. That's how that's where it should be. I think that's where it should be. So you think The Hobbit should be in the kids department also? Mm hmm. Yeah. Do you think the Dungeons and Dragons books should be in the kids' department? Because that's where it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. The, they kind of are in that nebulous gray area. It, <laughs> I guess it is dragons area. and I guess fights, like but gaming. some hardcore stuff. It must yeah, go here. <laughs> only children game. Mm. So you walked us through the beforehand, the book itself, and its significance. And why it is or isn't taught maybe in schools. I guess I want to wrap up the com- conversation on the book. As I do, as we wrap up every section of this part, I guess I ask you if you had to pitch this book or convince someone to read it who hasn't, why should I read this book? Other than it flows so easily and it is really fun to read and you can just read it one chapter at a time and like come back to it. I will say this. You could see this as one of the earliest comics. Each story, each chapter in the Garland was published on its own with original illustrations. 
and were widely circulated among children. And fun fact, even with soldiers, because it was easy to carry. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, and featured short attention-grabbing adventures that could be read a little at a time. During what, the, Sil- the Civil War? Or what? 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 <laughs> war? Uh, World War One, actually, is oh, okay. uh, where we see it popping up a lot, um, which is, I could see it as like a little bit of a, hey, I'm doing something that's scaring me where I have to oh, kind of go yeah. over the top. I can uh-huh. read this. But uh, I would say because of Pyle, Robin Hood may very well be one of the first comic book heroes ever. And hmm. so if you fancy yourself a fan of graphic novels and even just heroes in general, this then it would be vital for you to really call yourself a fan of that because you're reading into the history of it and you're seeing one of the very first comic books. So you're going at people's egos. That's how you convince them. You say you like comic books. You fancy yourself a fan of comics. (laughs) You're a poser unless you read Robin Hood. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll issue that challenge. You'll go there? Sure. Okay. Cause yeah, I'll I mean, tug you, at your ethos. Exactly. Because I mean, you made it sound like this kind of universe in itself where, hey, other people came on and wrote their own like side stories. And then this person yes. has their own spinoff and they have their own yes. stories. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's cool. Yeah, and it's so cool. Like over time, as audiences have changed... Robin Hood has been able to reflect those changes without losing his essential characteristics that we see in Pyle's story. He, no matter what age you are in, what century we're in, what decade we're in, the, the idea and the premise of an individual who was wronged and seeks to right those wrongs on the fringe of society by mm. taking from those who have a lot and misuse it to give it to those who need it it, it's something that is just timeless. Yeah, universal. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. The Fable and Folly Network supports creators of exceptional audio stories, including the one you're listening to right now. If you love our shows, we want to hear from you. Complete our listener survey at fableandfolly.com survey. This will help us learn more about you, what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, and how we can maintain an inclusive, safe atmosphere. As a thank you for your participation, we have extras and behind-the-scenes content from your favorite shows. Fans make the network what it is. Thanks for listening, and we can't wait to hear from you. Find our listener survey at fableandfolly.com survey today. Okay, now that we're done with the book, or at least this portion of the, uh, of the podcast, mm-hmm. I'm curious, because I haven't really talked to you about it that much, but I wonder, connecting this book now to of Mice and Men and Monsters in the storyline we've been doing. And it feels, and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like this one was vastly different than the other books. Because I wonder how you squeezed that book into our storyline, which feels Mm -hmm. so different. Like with, with Frankenstein and Moby Dick, they felt kind of like the through line of the book. I mean, you know, kind of for the most part, probably most more so Moby Dick, maybe. But this one seemed way different. It seemed like it was barely the book. What was it like for you as you were crafting the, the, uh, the, our D&D podcast and trying to squeeze Robin Hood into it? When you and I were first going over the concept of, of Mice and Men and Monsters, you know, we wanted to create who would be the leadership of the the opposition that our heroes could join with mm-hmm. and you know we're going over famous literary characters and robin hood kept coming up for both of us and we're like hmm, that would be an interesting one because you want them to be on the fringe and not having all the resources at their beck and call and a kind band of, that, of outsiders you know, yourself kind of, yeah. and collect yeah um and so you and i definitely knew we wanted to get them to a point of where they would meet the Robin Hood and and eventually Marion too and join up with them but also where they are you know at kind of like this home base um now that we're seeing Awen Bertram and Penny join the Green Hoods this is kind of a home base that they're going to be coming back to mm-hmm. uh you know every so often and characters they're going to be interacting with a lot and so it's great because the very nature of the Robin Hood stories is episodic and you have like little tidbits bit by bit. And so it could be fed 
in oh, small batches. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but it was more of the characters that drove my integration of this story. It was more like using the character of Robin Hood, using the character of Friar Tuck, um, Hugh Longshanks, who is actually in the, <laughs> in the oh, stories. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, kind of using how they're portrayed in the in the stories and then fleshing that out further. That is more what I have done. And so it's been a lot of like details and events um, that we see in this portion of our podcast and maybe later ones too, but it won't be the overarching because there is no large overarching story of the Mm -hmm. Robin Hood adventures. And so it's easier to make that episodic, which fits the, the tone of the episodic nature of the island that you guys can come back to time and time again as your home base. Gotcha. So it was more... It was more story, uh, not story driven, the opposite of that. It was more character driven where mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. were like, who could I include in this? Robin, Marion, uh, you know, a few others. And then you were just like, I, I want to keep aspects of their personality and see that through and who they were there and squeeze that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and interestingly mean. enough, Marion is mentioned twice yeah you told in, me that and that blew book. me away i was yeah because i feel yeah, like every iteration such a central that i've figure. seen exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah she's in, in a total of two sentences and she's not even present on the page in both of them she's still back home where robin can't return to uh but he he remains faithful to her uh and even though they are never able to get married and be together uh you still see him like pining for her in these in these two parts and it's just very clear like i'm not going to go after anyone because she'll always be like she will always be made marion she'll mm-hmm. always be unmarried uh so i thought that was very interesting because i was totally expecting like to have more to pull from because i wanted marion to have a significant part in our story uh but we yeah we don't see that we see one sentence where Robin is, you know, thinking of her and her bright eyes. So I, that's why, like, that's one thing where I keep pointing out, like, her her eyes in uh, descriptions of her. And then in the second one, because this Robin Hood is a foodie, which I which I made sure to transfer to ours as well. But just he is always hungry in the stories and always daydreaming about food. And that is the he will fight you if he's hangry. Like if if you come between Robin and some bread. Oh boy, he'll be ready to wrestle. So it's very interesting, like that that personality quirk, which it, you know, considering this is a a children's story, is a great one for that. So Robin Hood is reminiscing on Marion and wondering what she's doing at that moment, and he starts thinking about her hair, which is the perfect color of toasted bread. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> that's how every that's how everything is driven. It's just food and uh. <laughs> yeah. that's how that's yeah. how we I think that's how you introduce him. Or excuse me, her uh, in in the podcast. You introduce her through being frustrated and and I think in Fox form that we didn't bring bacon or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. that's actually a line from the book where uh, he is he's some of some of the guys come back from a raid and they didn't bring any bacon or sausage for him and he's very put out at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can so you? It is, yeah, it's fun for that. Can you talk a little bit about? why you chose to make Robin uh, a female in our podcast? Sure. Yeah. Uh, It was one of those where you and I talked about the importance of representation, really, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a heavy hand in that. But also just Robin itself is a gender neutral name. It could be a guy or a girl's name. And I did... I did enjoy this concept of seeing something that was run by women, that was female run, totally. mm-hmm. and not just by one figure, but to see also like how it could be cooperative and collaborative and have two figureheads as well. And so I thought that was very fitting with Robin and Marion. And the more I started writing the character of Robin, it was very clear, like, yes, it, it fits for her to to be in the world of Omamam in this way. And so just our fan fiction version of Robin was fleshed out in such the way that you guys heard her in the previous episodes. Yeah. I, I think 
that's what's so fun about Dungeons and Dragons, at least in a lot of the games that I see and the ones that I follow. Uh, it's a very inclusive world where it's kind of come as you are and we're all kind of messy and in our own way, but there and, and we can be <laughs> different kind of creatures and different backgrounds and class and gender or, or, what, or what have you. And it seems like everyone's kind of equal on the, uh, on the playing field, which I thought that we were trying to definitely uh, represent that kind of beauty uh, and, and inclusive world. We want we wanted our world to be that for sure. Yeah, yeah, for inclusivity to be here and for it to just not be a big deal. Uh, for like sure, they, yeah. they are there, and we don't have to um, give a wink you know, to the stop camera. Stop and be like, "Hey, guys, do totally. you see this?" Yeah. Right, it's, right. It's, it's there, and they're awesome. And I really enjoyed writing them, and I look forward to having them present in in future adventures as well. Absolutely. Are there any favorite? Easter eggs or quotes that you pulled from the book and put in our episodes? There, yeah, there were a couple. Uh, so very first one that I thought of was when I'm introducing Friar Tuck. It's <laughs> in the book, he, he is described pale as dough. There's another little foodie <laughs> oh, thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I made sure to include that when you see him. <laughs> uh, I do, I, I included the character, you know, when considering NPCs, There are lots to pull from, and so you have to figure you can't fit them all into an episode, and if you don't want it to run too long and to be too arduous in in details, you can't have, really for me, like I I couldn't really introduce more than three NPCs, four NPCs for this, or else I'm just, I would get in over my head. Right. And so one of them that I decided, because I really just liked, I liked the possibility of how he could interplay and contrast with Bertram was Hugh Longshanks. Um, and so in the story, Hugh Longshanks of Ancaster, um, he is the guy who makes the clothing in Lincoln Green for Robin and his group. So oh, he okay. is their clothier. He doesn't live with them. They, they outsource to him. But I thought that would be a, a great character for, for Bertram to, to talk to. And then I just added the detail, like, why is he here? Well, he is mm-hmm. Marion's cousin. And so in the story, remember, we don't really see Marion. And so we don't have Hugh, Long, Hugh Longshakes as Marion's cousin. But I wanted to have that as a detail for our own podcast. Are Friar Tuck's dogs... Uh, in the book as well. Yes. All their names. Yes. What are, that, what are was their names next, again? that was my next bullet point. So my my quote that I took directly from that is uh, when the friar first meets Robin Hood and they kind of have a tussle, right? Because they have a, a misunderstanding um, and the friar actually wins. <laughs> he has these hounds with him and so he sticks him on Robin. And so the the quote here is the are the very first words that we hear Friar Tuck say in our episode. But he's yelling at his dogs to go get Robin in this. And so he says, Adam Sweet Lips, Adam Bellthroat, Adam Beauty, Adam Fangs. And so these four hounds now, I'm like, who are these? Mm-hmm. Who are these doggies? So they're they're in that because I'm always happy to have all the animals appear. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that mm-hmm. that's an item you included for Penelope to have the, mm-hmm. the whistle so she the can call whistle. upon the yeah. dog. She can call upon the dogs. <laughs> that was really cool. Uh, so th- those were some of my, my favorite ones that I had in there. And really every single time that we have an introductory part or like an in-between where I'm narrating, mm-hmm. I'm pulling words directly from the book to fill in and help give imagery, you know, of what we can see, what we can hear, right. what we can smell and all that fun stuff, appealing to the five senses uh, through the words of Howard Pyle. And so I, for a lot of that, I'm finding great inspiration because he is more than happy in his stories to stop and describe his illustrations, really. Can you give me another quote? Because I, re- I like that last one you read. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, this one is uh, one that I took part was, uh, Sweet was the greenwood as he walked along its paths, and bright the green and rustling leaves, amid which the little birds sang with might and main. And blithely Robin whistled as he trudged along, thinking of Maid Marian and her bright eyes, for at such times a youth's thoughts are wont to turn pleasantly upon the last that he loves best. 
It sounds, yeah, you're right. It sounds very sing-songy. It almost seems like it has the cadence where it should be poetry, but it's not. And it doesn't rhyme, mm-hmm. but there's a sing-songy, flowery nature to it that's really bouncy and pleasant. Just yeah, hearing you read it's, it, it's, it's very pleasant. Prosatry. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Prosatry. Whoa. Mm. Uh, coin that. Copyright that. <laughs> that's, 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 that's ours. <laughs> uh, no one take it. Pay me. Pay me. Pa- pay me. <laughs> okay, so uh, shifting away from the book, unless there's, is there anything else you wanted to throw out? Any, any other kind of details? Closing the book? No, I, I, did, I did some of the my favorites there. Perfect. Then let's go to a couple questions that people sent in. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. sending in questions. Again, if you want to send in a question that we can get to one of our book report episodes, send it to omamamshow at gmail.com. Again, it's omamamshow at gmail.com. Please... Send us your thoughts, questions, and anything else. We would just love to engage with you in that way. So it's your f- deep thoughts. What is going through your little mind? We want to hear it. Don't keep going for their ego again. Trying to hit them where it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right. <laughs> so the first question came in from Claire, and it says, where did the music come from? And I... As the editor, I've been the one kind of doing a lot of the post work and finding the themes and the music in between. And that's been a lot of fun of kind of building the world in my own way. As Caitlin kind of builds the world uh, on the front end, I'm kind of building a lot of the world on the back end as well. So when looking for the theme, I probably went through so many songs, just trying to find something that was catchy and fun and tried to kind of give off the vibe I wanted to give off and kind of mysterious and... And I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but something that kind of just seemed kind of fun and uh, would make you just, you didn't want to fast forward the intro song, hopefully. You just wanted to write it out and enjoy it. I think those are the best. Those are the best intros. So I found a song. I've taken all of my music, I think, so far from um, Creative Commons music that's free to use on YouTube. And I found a person named White Bat Audio. It's White Bat Audio. And he has a ton of incredible, oh, I assume it's a he. I don't know what the, what, if they're a uh, man they. or a woman. They. They have a lot of great music that is uh, a lot of um, techno, synth, kind of that 80s, uh, John Carpenter kind of 1980s kind of horror synth, which I thought was really cool sounding and fun. And so I used that for the theme. And besides that, there's another artist who does a lot of Creative Commons stuff, and his name is Ross Bugden, and he has a ton of beautiful music. I use, I know on mm-hmm. my YouTube channel, uh, Entertain the Elk, I use a ton of his music all the time. Uh, it's really, uh, well, he, he seems to be one of those kind of composers. He's one of those persons that you kind of feels like a, uh, a, a diamond in the rough to find, where it's like, how are you not huge and getting paid a bunch of money? Because it seems like he can do all kinds of genres. He can do really quiet, uh, classical, poetic, beautiful. And then you can do uh, John Williams kind of style, big fanfares and kind of do, do it all. And so I've used a f- I used a few of his for the Moby Dick one. And that's what's been so fun about doing these as well. I try, it was a creative idea that I thought would help separate each book that we're doing. And so besides just the, the intro theme is the only thing that's consistent throughout, uh, the intro outro, outro theme is the only thing that's constant throughout. But besides that, I wanted each book to have its own feel. And so it's been fun is trying to pick audio from different places. I know for the first one, it was a lot more kind of like techno synth, kind of darker for Frankenstein. For Moby Dick, it was trying to find a lot of, I found a lot of uh, Icelandic um, kind of throat singing for something that seemed more kind of also ominous, but had seriously, a little, had a little, that music was the music we didn't realize we needed. As soon as you started playing it, it I'm like, fits so well. This is perfect. It just felt I like didn't you know were. This existed. It felt like you were on the waters and <laughs> and going into something dark and mysterious. Mm-hmm. And then for Robin Hood, it was definitely more Celtic music. A lot of kind of plucking of strings and lighter and mm-hmm. which I thought just kind of fit with what we were trying to do on the island. 
And so, oh, yes, you're, you're in a safer spot. Yeah, and it's kind of a, a not as mood. moody and scary. It is, there's not an mm-hmm. imminent threat, it feels like. It's more right. you're on the island walking around, almost like a video game. If you're on a, a level that's on a video game, and it's more kind of light and just kind of underlining everything, but there's not something like scary. There's not a, ba- mm-hmm. a boss battle happening that needs to drive <laughs> right. home or get that across. So that's been a lot of fun with the music. The last question I'll go over is from Juliana, and it says, this is for Caitlin, how long does it take to plan, script your episodes? It varies uh, because it depends on the book and if I've read that book before. But typically I will first read the book, read through the book and pick out any details that stand out to me, they could be full quotes or they could be names of people, you know, for NPCs or places um, and plot points. And I'll put that down on a document um, as well as then I'll want to, for the arc of that book, go through the skeleton of like the main points of what will happen, kind of like a how will it begin with, you know, good context and background info, some rising action, climax, falling action, and how it ends. And then once I have the main events that occur, uh, it's important then to confer with Adam, you know, as a producer, what are the big events that we want to make sure that that connect to the larger story? Yeah, the larger story. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard because you're having to connect the individual kind of micro book to the macro larger story. Yeah. Right. And so it's like connecting the larger story with Adam as a producer to the smaller details that he doesn't know about because he's going to be playing in it. And I want to keep that from him. Uh, and then I will start to just figure out. And, and pacing is not a strength of mine. Uh, I will always think we can do way more than we do because I have three players that are great at improving and love one another and get along well and just rib one another so much. And so I am learning bit by bit <laughs> for each session to scale back what I have planned um, in my in my modular planning, which means like more of a bullet point type of planning, and then um, letting them have those moments to play through their characters and to talk to one another, have fun, and to make sure like here are two or three events that we need to make sure we get through within this time span. So for planning an episode, it takes me on the front end, it takes longer, and so I would say it takes about two to three weeks. Uh, to plan an episode and then on the back end once we've kind of picked up it takes like more one to two weeks to plan yes. and that's not like devoting eight hours a day every day to right it. you know it's it's kind of just free time that I have after my regular job of teaching and also uh, being a mom to a, a one-year-old and so it's it's fitting it in the moments when I can but it's it's over the span, and I am a horrible procrastinator. Um, <laughs> so it it is one of those where it's good to have the deadline of here's when we are going to be recording, so that I know like it needs to be done before then, well before then, so that it, it goes more smoothly. It's not something that I can actually wait until the very moment of. It is something that needs to be done. With plenty of time to go right. so that the more prepared I am with my modular planning of like here are the bullet points we need to get to, the more I can allow them to have fun and guide them through without railroading. Yeah, and able to, in, in order for, to be able to, in order to be able to, it really that helps. It actually if, makes grammatical sense. Does it? Okay, it sounds weird. But yeah, <laughs> if, if you're going to improv for hours the more that you know of the world and the characters and the setting, that just seems so paramount. Otherwise, you're just not going to be prepared. So yeah, mm-hmm. there is a lot of improv. I mean, it's, I mean, it's all, for the most part, a lot of improving when you're playing the game. But it's also kind of guided improv. And if you don't have that guidance, then you're just yeah. lost. So, so it yeah, sounds for like... for example, when, when you had... Uh, when Bertram, Penny, and Awen were first meeting Robin and Marion... In, in the main tree trunk, I, you know, had my pages and pages of like lore for that world and what the Green Hoods were doing so that it was at the ready based off of what questions you chose to ask me. 
and again, another a segment that lasted two hours that I had to edit down to about 40 <laughs> minutes because it was two hours long. We were talking to them for a long time, but that's just all of us kind of figuring out the pace. But, but yeah, that's it's, it's goofing. I know what it's, but it sounds like when you're researching and coming up with it, you have the, the larger story in the back of your mind. And then, you know, the individual episode, what you want, how do you want to begin and end? And maybe even in that, then going smaller, and it's how you want each individual episode to end for the most part, kind of knowing what's going to happen there. And then as you're reading the book, you're having to read with that kind of filter of, oh, that's a character yeah. I could use, or that's a detail mm-hmm. I could use. Oh, that's a quote mm-hmm. about a setting. Maybe I can fit that mm-hmm. in somewhere. So it's almost like you got to mm-hmm. have, I forget what you call it as a DM, but it's about having like your toolbox and having your toolbox and things at the ready. So it's like, oh, they mentioned that they mentioned going to an area. Oh, I'll pull this quote. This quote is perfect for that. Or they talk to a person. Yeah. Oh, here's a person ready for that. And you pull it out of the, the box that you have. That modu- yeah, it's, modular it's labeling planning? my quotes. Yeah. yeah, it's modular planning, but it is labeling my quotes when I find them. So it's like I know which quotes are for setting, mm-hmm. which quotes are for character, which quotes are for action. Um, so it's, it, it helps that you've been, later on you've been so good at, at the ready. You've been so good at that, about having those things. And it really seems like a really beautiful, happy accident when we might throw a question at you while improving, and you come back locked and loaded, ready with a quote and you answer it in such a beautiful way that fits with, oh, ma'am, ma'am, but also happens to be a quote from the actual book. And I love those, those three or four times so far when they've both like collided you're like, oh, that sounds so good. And I love how it, they both this married together really well. I think there was one, I think, uh, on Moby Dick when Penelope was asking Abigail about like where the uh-huh, island is uh-huh. or something like that. And she said, mm-hmm. she said something along the lines of like, there is, it's, not on a, it's not on any map. True places never are or something yep. like that. Mm-hmm. It's and you're not like, oh, that's such, a, that's such mm-hmm. a good line. And I'm so glad yeah. that you had that locked and loaded from the book. <laughs> it's been really cool yeah. seeing you. Uh, marry those two things together in such a beautiful way. Yeah. You guys play right into my hands. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we hope you all enjoyed Robin Hood and enjoyed this little book report on it. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for all of your research and time put into uh, going through this book and the history. Uh, I know I learned a lot, and I hope that the listeners did uh, as well. Yeah. So go, go, go find the book. Go find Howard Pyle's Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, and you. What's the obnoxious title? Give him the give him the whole obnoxious title. (laughs) Go and find the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of great renown in Nottinghamshire. Woo! Rolls (laughs) right off the tongue. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much again, Caitlin, and thank you so much for listening. We really hope you're enjoying uh, of Mice and Men and Monsters. We're having a blast making it. And we just want it to yes, grow. Yes, yes. And that's the best way that you can help us. If you do like this show, please, word of mouth is huge when you're just starting off. So if you have other friends who like literature or like comedy podcasts or just like podcasts or like Dungeons and Dragons, all of those things, or they just have a similar style of humor maybe to you, then please share it with your friends because they'll trust you a lot more than they'll trust strangers screaming at them amongst thousands of other hundreds of thousands of other podcasts Mm -hmm. vying for their time so yeah if you want to just help us grow and we would so appreciate it um please do share it with your friends and spread the word color green for the green hoods go grassroots baby exactly help grow the show please uh (laughs) and along with that a great way you could help us if you could take, please pull out your phone or get on your computer, take 10 seconds, uh, maybe 45 seconds. I don't know how long it would take, but please go rate and review us on like Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And mm-hmm. we would just love to hear your feedback. Uh, if you could rate us and, and review us, it's just a way to help bump the algorithm, help spread us to people. Uh, again, get, get us in front of their eyeballs and their ear holes so that way they can uh, check us and- out. It also boosts our confidence. We, we read every single one of them and we share it with each other. And we get really excited when we hear from any of you. I so have no confidence. Level, Please help me. I have no confidence. Please boost my confidence. <laughs> <laughs> help me. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we love this show and we really hope that you love it as well. And the way, if you do, the way to help uh, us keep doing it is by sharing it with your friends, rating and reviewing. And again, reach mm-hmm. out to us. Oh, ma'am, ma'am show at gmail.com. 
We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and we're also on social media. Twitter and Instagram. Uh, at OMAMM Show. At OMAMM Show. And we will see you in Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo. Woohoo! The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Dum Dums and Dice would like to welcome you into the Mythos Mysteries, a live play pulp Cthulhu podcast where improvisers and comedians venture into dangers beyond their wildest imagining. Our story begins with two erstwhile companions on a long and winding road. They think they are fleeing danger, but greater horror awaits them when they arrive. For they are not just running away from mortal danger, but towards the Mythos Mysteries. Whoever you are, we're not scared of you. You hear a voice from inside that says, Please, help. I'm inside the dresser, help. Now I need you to listen to my very explicit instructions here, Adrian. Okay. Please ready your punch and fists. Yeah, they're always ready. Now I'm going (laughs) to... I'm going to open the door. Okay. And we're going to look inside the dresser. What if we don't? Could we not? (laughs) I need you to be brave for me. Okay. You were always very brave. Okay. Okay. So we're going to open the door and you're going to look in the dresser. And then what? And then if I tell you to. Yep. We're going to punch it. The dresser? (laughs) (laughs) You said I had to be very, you said explicit. If there is someone in the dresser. I'm punching. We're going to punch him. What if it's a ghost? Well, then we're going to have ourselves a fun time. Like a party? (laughs) Like a birthday party. Okay, so we'll do some dancing and there will be a cake. Hopefully the ghost brought it. Yes. Okay, I can do this. Okay. I'm going to open the door now. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to open the door. You open the door and the dresser is back upright. All the drawers are back inside. But now it is next to the window and the bed is in a different corner. Of course it is. And the blood is pooling on the floor instead of the ceiling. It's dripping up. The Mythos Mysteries. Episodes are available now.